Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Sabbath. I hope you've uh, enjoyed your holiday seasons. And uh, if you are still in that period, then I hope you continue to enjoy them. Uh, our family got back from holidays this week. Or we got back from annual leave this week. And uh, it's always kind of interesting starting a, uh, starting a new year officially. Um, this year was a little bit different because of the severity of the bushfires and um, the bushfires have kind of inspired the sermon for today and uh, the next sermon in the series. Uh, we're going to be doing a two-part series entitled For the Least of These. For the Least of These. There's a book written by uh, Nathan Brown, and the, enti- the title of that book is For the Least of These. And he has really great insights into, um, into this idea of justice and providing support for the oppressed. And so... Today we're going to be covering the call to justice, um, which is, I find, a very refreshing biblical take on this idea of justice. And the second part of the series will be called Living Out Justice as a Church. Living Out Justice as a Church. Um, I don't know, I'm curious, how many of you are, uh, how many of you are familiar with the Facebook page um, from ADRA in Victoria? The Facebook page from ADRA in Victoria. So for those of you who are curious about what kind of support has been given here in the state from Adder Victoria, I highly encourage you to go and check out the Facebook page. There are updates every single day on the needs of the community and the relief work that's taking place. And so for those of you who are interested in uh, providing support and helping out, um, highly encourage checking out that page. Uh, also, there's a WhatsApp message group, and I think... I just checked my phone and I have 176 messages that I haven't been able to read through. Uh, but it's a very, very active group of, uh, I want to say the volunteer base is probably like over 100 people. And every single day they're collecting things like generators, bedding, um, and they're personally going out to the um, areas where there has been uh, bushfire, and they're actually connecting with communities and asking them, hey, what are things that you need? And then they post on WhatsApp uh, the things that are needed. It's been quite incredible to see the response. There have been a ton of volunteers. They've been doing incredible work, and they are now even recognized in the community as a well-organized agency. So today we're going to be talking about justice, and I believe that there is a strong connection between justice and relieving, um, helping those who are oppressed and helping those who are in need. Uh, Before I start, I'm going to invite you to join me in prayer um, as we begin. Father God, I just want to ask that as we open your word and as we read through scripture together, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would teach us to be a church that practices justice, that brings glory to you, um, that people might know that you are a God who cares for the suffering, who cares for the oppressed. We pray these things in your name. Amen. As we start this idea of justice, uh, I'm going to read a quote by Ken Wistma. He says, truth corresponds to what is. Truth corresponds to what is. Justice to what ought to be. Justice to what ought to be. The work of justice then is working back to what creation was originally intended for. God's original intention for the world and its people. If you have your white um, world changer Bibles or if you have your scripture in your 
phone, I invite you to turn to Psalm chapter 24, verse 1. Psalm chapter 24, verse 1. And this is page 451 for those of you who are using the World Changer Bibles. And as we're going to read through these series of passages, we're going to see that humanity has an ordained role within creation to care for God's good creation. We are ordained with the responsibility to care for that which, is God, which God has made. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. God sees the earth as belonging to himself. Notice if you go to Genesis chapter 2 verse 15, God owns creation and as he creates the first human in Genesis chapter 2 verse 15, the story goes, the Lord placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. God then places mankind or humanity as stewards of that which he has created. If you look at Revelation 14, verse 6 and 7, this is a famous verse that uh, the Seventh-day Adventist Church has kind of taken as its mission. And the very first angel that flies through the midst of heaven has this famous message. And in verse 7, that angel proclaims, Fear God, he shouted, and give glory to him, for the time has come when he will sit as judge. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. There's this connection here between being a steward of God's creation and worshiping God. The way that we worship God is by being proper stewards of that which he has emplaced in our care. If you go to Proverbs chapter 14, verse 31. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 31. And if you look, or excuse me, it's page 522 in the World Changer Bibles. Page 522, Proverbs chapter 14, and looking at verse 31. The Bible reads, Those who oppress the poor insult their maker, but helping the poor honors him. The Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright argues that the poor should be treated with dignity that reflects the fact that they too are created by the same God. Indeed, what we do to or for them, we do to or for God. And so in scripture, God kind of connects this idea of that which he has created to himself. One other story that I'd like to read through with you, well, one other among many, Matthew chapter 25. This story highlights this strong connection between the creator and the created. Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25 is known as, an, as the uh, apocalyptic section of Matthew. And here in this story, God, or excuse me, here in this part of the Gospels, Jesus tends to talk about the end times. He talks about the end times and he gives this end time parable and he talks about the difference between those who are saved and those who are lost, those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous. So Matthew chapter 25, and we're going to be looking at verses 31 to 46. 
verses 31 to 46. That's page 796. And I'm going to narrate this parable to you, um, and I welcome you to read through uh, the story if you would like. Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 to 46. So it starts out, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And here he distinguishes these two categories, those who are saved, those who are lost. Jesus first starts with the category of those who are saved. And if you pick up uh, in verse 34, he says that the king will speak to the sheep and he will say, come and enter into heaven. Come and enter into the gates. And the people who are saved ask this question, God, or or excuse me, he will say, um, let me just read through this. (laughs) Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. And he says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in need, you helped me. And then those who are saved will then ask, God, when did we serve you? And he says, when you did it for the least of these, you did it unto me. He then goes to the second category and he says, you do not enter into the gates of heaven. When I was hungry, you ignored me. When I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. When I was in need, you gave me no assistance. I want to highlight verse 40. And this is kind of like the text that Nathan Brown uses for the title of his book. When the king says, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. This story is so uh, maybe profound, but so strong in that Jesus places those who do nothing for the oppressed and those who oppress the helpless in the same category. It's such a strong, it's such strong language and it's such a potent idea. When we think of exploitation, we generally think of people who are oppressive. But from the perspective of God, apathy and oppression both fall into the same category. Nathan Brown writes, exploiting one created in God's image as a mere means to an end is the penultimate sin against God's law. Following only the sin of failing to acknowledge and worship God alone as God, these two sins are connected. If we refuse to respect the life of one created in God's image, we will not reverence the one whose image she has created. Working for justice, caring for the poor, and relieving the oppressed are key ways in which we faithfully respond to the creator and nathan here connects that idea once again between creation and the creator you know a lot of times we argue over the doctrine of creation how long did it actually take for creation to take place and i really like the fact that nathan highlights this idea of you know we spend a lot of time arguing creation rather than honoring uh, we spend a lot of time arguing about creation rather than honoring creation Here's one more verse where this is highlighted, uh, one more story where this idea is highlighted. Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 13 to 15. Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 13 to 15. This is page 627. 
627. Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 13 to 15. It says, And the Lord says, What sorrow awaits Jehoiakim, who builds his palace with forced labor? He builds injustice into its walls, for he makes his neighbors work for nothing. He does not pay them for their labor. He says, I will build a magnificent palace with huge rooms and many windows. I will panel it throughout with fragrant cedar and paint it lovely red, but a beautiful cedar palace does not make a king great. The story continues on in verse 15 and 16. Your father, Josiah, also had plenty to eat and drink, but he was just and right in all his dealings. This is why God blessed him. He gave justice and help to the poor and needy, and everything went well for him. Isn't that what it means to know me, says the Lord? And once again, that connection between knowing God and giving. Abraham Heschel writes, Knowledge of God is action towards man. Knowledge of God is action towards man. Sharing his concern for justice is sympathy in action. See, because we are a part of God's creation, we are connected to one another. When God questioned Cain, where is your brother? Cain replies, am I my brother's keeper? But the fact that, G- or the fact that God asks him that question implies, yes, you are your brother's keeper. Humanity is a part of this network of relationships that connects us all in God's creation. There's a Adventist pioneer, uh, a lady who helped start the Adventist church. Her name was Ellen White, and she writes in the book Ministry of Healing, We are all woven together in the web of humanity. The evil that befalls any part of the great human brotherhood brings peril to all. We are all woven together in the great web of humanity, and whatever we do to benefit and uplift others will reflect in blessings upon ourselves. And she highlights these two different ideas, or this one idea, both sides of it. We're all connected. When we hurt one, we hurt ourselves. We are all connected. When we help one, we help ourselves. And the whole idea through Scripture is that people matter. People matter. Considered in the light of God's creativity and love expressed in the life of each person, human suffering, exploitation, and oppression matter to God. In a world of rampant violence, inhumanity, and injustice, ignorance and apathy are sins, not excuses. Nathan Brown writes, Injustice matters to God and must matter to us. We must seek to advance and defend human rights, dignities, and freedoms wherever we have influence and opportunity. If acting in this manner is then, or excuse me, if humanity matters, then justice matters. When we think about the idea of justice from the scriptural perspective, I've introduced this idea by asking you, when you think of this idea of justice, how do you define justice for yourself? How do you define justice? When the Bible introduces uh, justice, rather than starting at injustice, it starts at God's goodness. Here's what I mean by that. 
oftentimes when people think of the idea of justice, it starts with an injust, uh, an act of injustice, a personal experience where they have been wronged. And so from that experience comes this response to then correct that which is wrong. But in the Bible, it starts with that which is good. So justice is not simply about highlighting that which is wrong and punishing, or excuse me, um, justice is not simply about highlighting that which is wrong and punishing wrongdoers. Justice is about restoring humanity towards the goodness of God. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this is page 925. There's a whole chapter that's dedicated to this idea of love. And I highly recommend, if you are interested, um, to commit this chapter to memory. Um, I, I've been working at it uh, since the new year, and just thinking about God's perspective of love has been incredibly refreshing. But there's a section in the middle from verses 4 all the way to verse 8 uh, where it talks about the positive of love. Um, if you look at verse 4, it says, Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice in injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. So notice the biblical perspective of love. It's not so much about highlighting the wrong. It's, and another translation would say, it does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. And so justice is not just simply about um, harping on that which is wrong. It's about redeeming, redeeming the wrong and becoming right. Our world loves to highlight injustice. And there are comedians who make a living out of highlighting injustice. And I'm not condemning these comedians. I actually really value their work. Um, I, I watch a lot of it, and it, uh, it's probably a large portion of how I get the news these days. But what I want to highlight is in Scripture, Scripture is more about condemning wrong. It's about redeeming that which is lost. Justice is only justice when it's redemptive. So when we start this discussion or this idea of justice, we don't start at injustice. We start at redemption. We start at the ideal, the oughtness of creation, if you will. Notice Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. In the time of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, there was rampant injustice, oppression, and oppression. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, this is page 548. Uh, 549. <clears throat> the prophet proclaims this message to bring about right from that which is wrong. And in verse 16 and 17, Isaiah says, Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. And notice the second part of that message. Learn to do good. Seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the cause of orphans, fight for the rights of widows. Because justice is redemptive work, 
it requires repentance, it requires learning, it requires effort. It doesn't happen overnight. And because justice is redemptive, God's desire is to alleviate the suffering of the oppressed, but also to help and save the oppressor. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 to 39, Jesus overlooks Jerusalem, and his whole life's mission is to redeem this city, but the problem is the city kind of rejects him because of their own self-interest, and they begin to oppress even Jesus. And he says in this famous line, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers, how often I've wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. In Jesus' closing moments of his life, he calls out to God, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There are people who are oppressing Jesus who have crucified him, who have put him on the cross, and his response is, God, please help the oppressors. That doesn't mean that everything is excused. It just means that God's, God first tries to redeem, and he tries to redeem everyone. That also doesn't mean that judgment doesn't happen, that God allows universal and unlimited mercy to go to everyone for all, uh, for all time. If you think about oppression, oppression, excuse me, forgiveness is not mercy to the victim if there is unlimited forgiveness, if that makes sense. In other words, there are times where God steps into history and he acts in judgment. He stops the oppressor. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 7, it says, Look, he comes with the clouds of heaven and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him. So as Jesus is on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, the Bible highlights that there's a special time where God specifically judges those who have wronged Jesus. So on one hand, there's a strong desire to help the oppressed, uh, excuse me, there's a strong desire to help the oppressor, and at the same time, God gives judgment as well. We've talked about a few things. We've talked about the importance of creation. Uh, we've talked about the context of justice in the context of creation. We've talked about this idea of justice. And finally, I want to close by talking about the idea of the Sabbath as a space for justice. The Sabbath as a space for justice. The Sabbath is a day that highlights equality. Uh, last time I spoke at the end of last year, I talked about the church as a sacred space where our ethnicity, our gender, our social standing is checked at the door as we step into this place. This is the one place where someone who has no social standing can become friends with someone who has high social standing. And that is the way that God thinks. And as you look at the Sabbath, this is uh, restated and highlighted again. If you go to Exodus chapter 20, notice how the Sabbath is mentioned, or notice how the Sabbath is described. In the Ten Commandments, many of the commandments in the original Hebrew consist of two or three words. Uh, we have a different grammatical structure, but in the Hebrew it simply says, no idols, no 
and then it just kind of says, no, don't do this action. But in the Sabbath, there's this drawn-out explanation of how God uh, receives worship on the Sabbath. And if you look at Exodus chapter 20, it's page 64. We're going to look at verses 8 to 11. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11. The text reads, Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days, each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest, dictating to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons, and your daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigner living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. So notice in the holiness of God, as he says, sanctify this day, make it special. There are different distinctions or classes that are then wiped away. It's natural for somebody who owns another human being to say, I'm going to take a break. You work harder. But on the Sabbath, he says, uh, God says, everybody is to rest from the person who is within your gates to your animals. Sigvi Tomstead <clears throat> describes the Sabbath, uh, describes how this kind of command is unique in all the clusters of the world. The Sabbath commandment, he explains, prioritizes from the bottom up and not from the top looking down giving first consideration to the weakest and the most vulnerable members of society, those who need rest the most. The slave, the resident alien, the beast of burden are singled out for special mention. The Sabbath is this idea of bringing about, or, or reminding, um, reminding worshipers of God to practice justice, not just on that one day, but also the other six days of the week. Sabbath is also a day of healing, in the New Testament, Jesus often healed people on the Sabbath. And the reason why this is significant is because in the times of the Old Testament, God would send prophets to uh, rebuke the Israelites for not keeping the practical aspects of the Sabbath. But by the time Jesus enters into the scene in the New Testament era, the Israelites kind of swing in the opposite direction where before they were disregarding the practical aspects of the Sabbath, but they turn the Sabbath into this uh, oppressive day. And the significance of this is that Jesus knows if I perform acts of healing on this day, it's going to rock the boat. And in multiple, time, uh, in multiple instances, Jesus goes, he looks around, sees that the Israelite leaders are really upset that he's about to heal somebody, and he does it anyway. And the whole point of this is that Jesus risks his life to help people, to communicate, Sabbath is about relieving oppression and helping people. Jesus could have waited till the next day. He could have waited for the next three days and done the exact same thing, but he does this to communicate this important message. So the Sabbath highlights the importance of equality, the importance of healing, but there are several other Sabbaths mentioned in the Old Testament. And these Sabbaths, I think, really give us a broader picture or a more filled picture of what justice looks like in the eyes of God. 
If you go to Exodus chapter 21, Exodus chapter 21, just the next page over, there was slavery in Israel. There was slavery in Israel. And I think this is a really challenging thing because uh, critics tend to look at this Old Testament part of Scripture and say, well, if there's slavery in the Bible, how can you believe that God is good? And what I want to highlight here is that there are times in Scripture where God accommodates the fallen nature of humanity. He looks at the circumstance of humanity, and then he tries to implement policies that help people think above the norm. And we're going to see that in Exodus chapter 21. And uh, I'm just going to read the first four verses. Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 to 4. These are the regulations you must present to Israel. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he may serve you for no more than six years. Set him free in the seventh year, and he will owe you nothing for his freedom. And I'll just stop there. If On your own time, if you want to read from verses 1 to 11, um, I highly encourage it. I highly encourage you to do so. It's really interesting to see all the um, uh, the specifics of each of the rules that God gives to Israel. But what I want to highlight about slavery here is that God commands Israel, free your slaves every seven years. And that's very different from the slavery that the rest of the world was practicing and still practices today. And so, yes, there's slavery in Scripture. And at the same time, the slavery in Scripture is, uh, the policies that surround the slavery is very different uh, from the norm. And the Sabbath is a reminder that the ideal is freedom. The ideal is freedom. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 15, Deuteronomy chapter 15, and we're going to start in verse 1. Once again, it highlights this sabbatical year. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 1. It says, and this is page 162. At the end of every seventh year, you must cancel the debts of everyone who owes you money. Isn't that interesting? So every sabbatical year, there's debt cancellation. Oh, how great would that be? You've got this credit card that you've maxed out, and you just you can't get beyond paying those minimum payments. Year seven rolls around, and you know, ah, there's freedom. So the design of the sabbatical year, it's not just to relieve oppression of those who are in slavery. It's to those who are in financial oppression. Going to Leviticus chapter 25, one last aspect of the sabbatical years that I'd like to highlight. Leviticus 25. Leviticus is the third book of the Bible. Leviticus 25 and verses 8 to 12. And this is in context to land or wealth distribution. Leviticus 25 verses 8 to 12. And I'm going to highlight just a couple verses. Actually, verses 8 to 10. So in addition, you must count off seven sabbath years seven sets of seven years so this is basically 49 years so every 50th year there's this special sabbatical year and it's called the year of jubilee 
says, Then on the day of atonement in the 50th year, blow the ram's horn loud and long throughout the land. Set this year apart as holy, a time to proclaim freedom throughout the land for all uh, who live there. It will be a jubilee year for you when each of you may return to the land that you that belonged to your ancestors and return to your own clan. So this has tremendous significance because when Israel first enters into the promised land, God divvies up all the land and says, this is the land of your clan and of your tribe and of your family. This land is holy. And he gave specific instructions around this, uh, this, the possession of property and of land. And he said, you are never allowed to sell this because it is your divine right and inheritance to have this place and make sure and keep it for your posterity. Now, what would inevitably happen is that people would run into financial problems and they would then sell their property off and then they would be without land. And the idea of the year of Jubilee is that every 50th year, then the land would get redistributed and returned to those who own it. And if you read through the rest of the chapter, it kind of gives the different guidelines around that wealth distribution. I don't know how many of you are familiar with um, wealth inequality in Australia, but uh, the top 10% own 50% of the wealth in Australia. The top 10% own 50% of the wealth in Australia. If you look at the top 20%, the top 20% own two-thirds of the wealth in Australia. The top 20%. That means 80% of the population in Australia owns one-third of the wealth in Australia. And my whole point in saying that is that um, God designs something within Israel to keep wealth equality um, to implement wealth equality. And this is not a practical thing because like this would turn Australia upside down, right? But what I am saying is when somebody looks at this idea of justice and asks the question, God, what do you think about this? These are practical things that God has implemented in the Old Testament to say, this is what I want Israel to look like. I want there to be no slavery. I want everybody to have a home. I want everybody to be free from financial oppression. So when we think of this idea of justice in God, we ask that question, God, what are you like? This is what he's like. So we currently have this uh, natural disaster that's continuing on, and a lot of uh, professionals are kind of saying, look, we're kind of in the middle of it. Like the fires are going to continue on for another, uh, the fires are going to continue on. And so there comes that question, well, what can we do to alleviate the suffering of others? There are a few options that I'd like to present to those of you who want to help. One is by following the Facebook page, uh, the the uh, ADRA in Victoria Facebook page. You can follow the different needs, and then you can respond by posting and saying, hey, I have this. Uh, they have volunteer drivers who are driving all around Melbourne and picking up items. I had someone pick up a bed uh, just the other day. So in the morning, I, I texted and said, hey, I've got a bed if anybody needs. And seven hours later, someone came, picked it up, and took off. Uh, I thought it was quite efficient and quite amazing, actually. If those of you who want to get more involved would like to join the WhatsApp group, then let me know and I can add you into the WhatsApp group. I will warn you, there's a lot of messages and you will have a ton of notifications, but I think you will definitely be in the know of what needs to happen. So if you have a strong desire to help out, then you can do that. 
for those of you who are interested in financial giving, we're going to have a special uh, collection of offering uh, January 25 for Australia Day weekend. Um, you can make the offering before then, but we're just going to do a special offering so you can think about um, how you want to give. Um, and that offering, basically, if you want to do it online, then there is a... Um, if you go on to e-giving and you're used to e-giving, there's a section that says... Uh, there's a section entitled Funds... Uh, hold on, funds for needy persons. And what happens is if you give to funds for needy persons, you'll be giving a tax receipt and that offering is tax deductible. You can do that also through the um, offering um, the offering envelopes. If you want to write down funds for needy persons, write down your name and your contact information and you will receive a um, tax receipt for that. It's my hope and prayer that as you think about this idea of justice that um, yeah, it, it really begins to transform your life. And um, I believe that the more justice we practice as a church and as individuals, the more people begin to acknowledge, hey, maybe God is good. When people see God's people doing good, they will believe that he is good. May God bless you as you consider this. Please join me for closing prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for giving us these guidance in the guiding principles in the word to show us how to live a life that is not only meaningful for us, but that makes a just and a kind world for others. And Father, we pray that as you inspire us to give and to share and to think of others and to put them first, Father God, that we will experience the miracles of obedience, the miracles of following you and seeing the blessing that comes from that. I pray, Father, that you would continue to send relief for all those um, around Australia who are suffering from the bushfires, that you would um, continue to be with all the uh, emergency aid individuals and agencies, that you would give them strength um, and help us, Father, as a country to be able to really be there for each other in a meaningful way, to not just give financially, but also to give of our hearts and our time, to be listening to their needs and to uh, be there for our neighbors, Lord, even if they aren't affected by the fires. Everyone around us is going through something. Father, help us to pause and, and, and listen and to connect with them. This is our prayer in your son's name. Amen.